If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. We're continuing our brief look at the ministry of Paul in, in Acts. Acts chapter 17, we'll start in verse 16. Well, I uh, survived my first 24-hour period as a father without Rebecca. She uh, departed to go to a wedding in Alabama, and I'm still here to talk about it. So, uh, and Desmond is too, so praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It was rough, though. It was rough. I, she's going to have to... She's going to have to really talk me into something if she ever tries that again. <laughs> There's going to have to be a quid pro quo. Uh, it's good to be with you. Acts chapter 17, starting verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also with the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers, he debated with them. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. And this was because he was telling them the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now, now all of the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and, and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through your city and looked upon Carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human at, at hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. For from one ancestor he made all the nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times and their existence and boundaries and places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day upon which all the world will be judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard the, of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed. 
And uh, others said, we will hear more about this again later. And at this point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dinus and the Aeropagite and a woman named Demirius and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our scene here with Paul, it's actually really something very unique in all of the New Testament. Um, We forget, or maybe we don't even think about, much of the New Testament, uh, much of Jesus' teaching and his interactions were all with Jews. Uh, You know, Christ himself was a Jew, and so most of the theological conversations, most of the teachings were within a very Jewish context. Uh, Even Paul's epistles, as he's writing to the churches, a lot of times it's kind of trying to uh, articulate the Christian message within a a Jewish framework. And so here, this uh, story we have that Paul goes to Athens is really unique because here we see the gospel coming out of the Jewish context and going into a context that really knows nothing of Judaism, knows nothing, uh, they know of it, but they don't respect the traditions of the Jews. It is really a free-thinking society. And so here we get to see the apostle preach the gospel uh, to a totally, pretty much what we would consider secular group, um, a group that was totally without a Judaism. So here we should pay attention because Paul is doing something incredible. He is contextualizing the gospel message for people that have never really heard of Yahweh or Jesus, that had many different uh, philosophies of religion. Um, we know Athens. This is in our popular culture. Athens, uh, going back through history, this is a place where democracy and the ideas about it and is Socrates and free thinking and the idea of philosophy came about. Much of our Western cultural framework comes from uh, what was going on in Athens thousands of years ago. We are familiar with Athens. And so I love this story. It's a powerful story because we get to see the apostle incarnate the gospel message in a society unlike we've seen in the Bible up to this point in the gospels, right? It is, this is out of Galilee. This is out of Israel. This is taking the gospel to the farthest ends of the world. And we don't often get this view in the New Testament of what the gospel looks like in such a setting. And I think this is important for us today um, because what I'd like to suggest to us, and I don't think it's any news to you, But we live in a society, in a world today, much like the atmosphere of Athens at the time. Um, Our our country, uh, many societies are becoming more and more pluralistic. Um, Christianity in our society and and many others used to be the main bedrock of belief uh, within the society, and it's not that anymore. Um, We are becoming more pluralistic. And I, I don't have to tell you uh, you know, we talk about it uh, numerous times. Was, you've seen uh, the city and, and nations and change over time. Um, let me just put a few statistics to this, though, because we're not just imagining things. In 2014, uh, the Pew Research Center did a massive faith study just about the changing face of faith in America. Um, and at that time, in 2014, they pulled the different generations. They broke it generationally. Uh, So the silent generation, which uh, I never understood that name. Maybe I should research why it's called the silent generation. I I don't know how many of us are in that generation. It's the pre, if you're not baby boomer, if you're before baby boomer, you're in the silent generation. Of that, um, 
only 11% of that generation in 2014 would identify themselves as unaffiliated religiously, right? Only 11%. So majoritively in, in this country, we're Christians. So only 11% said, I don't have any religious affiliation, right? It's 11%. And the baby boomer generation, again in 2014, uh, that number was 17%. So 17% in 2014, so it's a few years older, 17% of the baby boomer generation said, I don't have any religious affiliation in America. Do you know what the number is of my generation? Of how many of my generation are totally religiously unaffiliated? 34% double the baby boomer generation, um, 35%. It's one of the largest blocks uh, of nuns. They call it, they actually have a term in this research, the rise of the nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, no religious affiliation whatsoever. It's a changing face uh, of faith in America. Um, I, you know, most of us are feeling this. Uh, most of our churches are feeling that, uh, this, this radical change and kind of getting away from not only uh, Orthodox Christian faith, but really uh, organized religion in general. Um, do you, you want to actually know, I read this actually this week, just an update to that study. Did you know within my generation, uh, amid that 35% of people that say they have no religious affiliation in my age group, do you know that almost three quarters of them, though, believe in God? Um, they believe in God, but they just don't want anything to do with organized religion. Now, I, I could preach a whole uh, sermon. I'm not here to talk about why. I'm not going to get into the why about all of this right now. But I just, you know, I'm just kind of giving us some statistics just to back up what we feel, right? Um, we live in a pluralistic society, and this is changing because now the church, we have to do some hard work about contextualizing the gospel. We used to only talk about that um, in missions. We would talk about in, in missions classes and as we're, we're going out to different cultures, we'd say, how are we going articu to articulate the gospel faithfully in their context, right? The gospel always has some surroundings of culture around it, but there is an essential message of the gospel that then gets contextualized in each culture. So in missions, we always thought, how do we contextualize the gospel? And here what I'm saying today in our society, even now, we, the church, have to do that same work. Because we can't take for granted, like we may have 50 years ago, that people were raised always reading the Bible, is now, it's not the case, um, that they probably just assumed that they would go to church, that was the social thing to do. And can, can I also do a tagline on this? Um, I... I I almost wonder, this may sound bad, I almost wonder in God's eyes if not that much changes though. Because just because a car is in the garage does not mean, uh, if something is in the garage does not mean it's a car, amen, right? So, so just because there's high attendance figures at church and different things, it doesn't mean that those people were committed to Christ and following him. It may have just been a social activity for them. So it, it may not be that big of a change. I'm not trying to be depressive. But the change is real, because now we are in a context where we can't assume that they know anything of Christian, um, and it's not the big boy of life. So we have to do the hard work of contextualizing the gospel. Uh, in Asheville, uh, we, we live in one of the areas that is uh, more post-Christian than most in the South. That's a term that uses if kind of the, the, the rise of the nuns. Uh, people are abandoning 
um, the churches uh, in large numbers of my generation. And that's happening a lot in our area in Asheville. I think a lot of us have felt that. So how do we respond to that? How do we still proclaim the gospel in that type of environment? I think this, this is why these questions are why this passage is so powerful for us uh, because I think it's not that big of a stretch to say we now live in a thing, uh, area, a culture that's a lot like that Athenian culture. People love talking about ideas. Uh, people are, are open to nearly everything. Um, and there's no anymore, there's no one uh, avenue of faith that's standard, right? Um, so we have to think about what does the gospel look like? What is the church's proclamation in such a culture? So we on the same board. So I think this, do we realize how powerful this is for us? Because I think it can, it can show us. As we look at the Apostle Paul, we can follow his example of what he does. So let's look at um, the scripture this morning. Let me kind of do a little background history with this just to explain what's going on. Paul didn't really plan his trip to Athens. Um, he was just kind of in the middle of things waiting on uh, his companions. And uh, while he was there, kind of looked around and said, boy, these People are worshiping a lot of idols, uh, but they obviously don't know the truth. Uh, so he began to get concerned. And he, he ran into a group, they're actually named, right? The Epicureans and the Stoics. Um, th- these are named because this would have been important. These were like the two, you know, no one walks around saying, hey, I'm an Epicurean, you know. Um, Mark, are you an Epicurean? Yeah. <laughs> Me either, yeah. Right, but these were, back in the day, if you said, I'm Epicurean, everybody would have known what you were talking about, right? Uh, these were the big philosophy camps. So let me just, you know, I think it's good for us to know who are these groups that were really interested in the gospel. The, the Stoics, we kind of know them. If you kind of walk around with a serious look on your face all the time, you're Stoic, right? And that's really where this comes from. Uh, because the Stoic philosophy of life, what they believed um, was that basically the path the happiness uh, was not to react, right? Uh, that if something bad happened to you, you just took it for what it was. Something good happened to you, you just took it for what it was. Uh, the Stoics, they thought to just to be in the moment, to accept it. But the Stoics also, they believed some good stuff. They, they, they thought that the virtues, to become a virtuous person was the highest ideal. That was what was important about life. They did believe in God. Um, they believed in God, and they believed that we uh, were meant to be virtuous people. Um, uh, they were based heavily on uh, Socrates. I know yeah, you've heard much about that. Um, and so they really did believe that we are called to control ourselves and control our actions, uh, that we shouldn't give in to fear or chasing pleasure. And so that's the Stoics wouldn't, wouldn't they, you know, stay, stay in the middle, stay grounded, don't, don't pursue anything else. The Epicureans were kind of the opposite. Uh, For them, uh, their highest ideal was pleasure. Um, uh, So they thought the goal and the best, the highest mode of life was pleasure. But they also, that that sounds like pure hedonism, but really most of them felt like that um, the best pleasure was actually to live modestly and don't desire much. That was actually the highest form of pleasure that they found. If you would just live modestly and don't desire much, that you'll actually live a really happy and pleasurable life. But they, the Epicureans, they did not believe in God. Uh, they, did, they had no uh, belief in God. And so uh, these were two very different groups. They were major, major uh, schools of thought for the Athenians. Uh, so Paul comes up against them, and they kind of say, hey, what does this babbler have to say? And that sounds like an insult. 
Um, and the, the image of the Greek there is kind of a bird that's dropping seed. Uh, and it's kind of like a, a, what they considered a peddler of religious ideas. I'm just kind of someone that goes around talking about religious kind of peddling their ideas. And so it is kind of demeaning. They say, what does this babbler want, want to know? And they take him to uh, Aeropagus. Aeropagus literally translated as a, a name we're all for actually familiar with. Anybody, any Greek scholars? Mars Hill. Uh, so that literally means Mars Hill. That's why, you know, Mars Hill College, uh, you've probably ran into churches named Mars Hill because they're referencing this story about when the Apostle Paul preached the gospel uh, to the world uh, and to the Athenians and, and what that looks like. So they took him to Mars Hill. Mars Hill, uh, he was actually, some of the background, it was actually a court where people were tried as well. Um, but here, Paul's not on trial. Uh, it's also a place. It's kind of like if we took somebody to the House of Representatives, there's actually a body named the House of Representatives, but there's also a place. And so they take him to the place, to Aeropagus. And... Uh, and uh, the, Luke even says they love to sit around and just talk about ideas all day. That's what the Athenians love to do. So as we look at Paul's message, before I actually look at the message itself, as we look at it, I kind of want to talk about his approach. How did he approach, again, what they would consider a totally pagan context, that these were Gentiles, uh, they were not Jews, had totally foreign philosophies, anything uh, related to the gospel, right? How does Paul approach them? Because before we get to the actual message, we need to think about what is our approach? How do we approach outside uh, cultures? How do we approach those who really know nothing about why this church is here in our community or what we're about? Um, how do we approach them? What is his approach? Well, Paul starts off his thing. He, ta- he starts off his sermon with what? A compliment, Right? A compliment. He says, uh, fellow Athenians, I see how religious, how pious you are in every way. Right? And it's kind of true. There's a lot of religious thinking going on in Athens. He starts with a compliment. Can I tell you something? You won't bring anybody to Jesus by telling them how dumb and stupid they are and for what they believe. They, they will close you down in a heartbeat if you say, all you believe is rubbish, let me tell you what's right. All right? Uh, people will close down. They'll clam up. They don't want to hear it. That is a good way to turn them off. And that's not what Paul does here at all. He shows them kindness and respect. Even though he disagrees with them, and we'll get to that, he still shows them kindness and respect, and he starts with a compliment. He points out the good. He he says, hey, I see you're pious and you're interested in this in every way. That's what he starts his foundation on, his opening thing. We need to show people that are different than us, that believe different than us. I know this is a challenge. It's not easy because or everybody would be doing it, right? We wouldn't have any problems or disagreements. But as the people of Jesus Christ in the world, even as our culture changes, and many of us may be frustrated, I get it that the culture has changed in such a way that people aren't believing like they seem to used to. I get it. But we can't become angry. We can't hold our, shake our fist at people. That won't do any good. You're just gratifying your own feelings then. You're pushing them farther away from the gospel. Hear me, church. Don't go around shaking your fist at your neighbors. They won't hear anything you say after that. Amen? 
And Paul the Apostle didn't do it. Amen? Well, I'm going to get fired up today. Sorry. Um, but I just, you know, I get it. I know we're frustrated. I know we wish it went different. But cursing our neighbors, shaking our fists at them, it doesn't do any good. We need to still show them kindness and respect even with what they believe. And in fact, um, Paul, it is good to point out the good. Paul here, you're, you're going to be a little scandalized by what Paul does, right? He actually, just a few verses down, I don't know if your translation puts the correct uh, quote marks about it. And actually, this is some of our favorite verse. Some of, I bet this has been our life verse before. For in, in him we have uh, we move and live and have our being. Anybody favorite this verse? Do you know he's actually there quoting Greek philosophy? That was, that was written uh, by Greeks. He's quoting them there. It's quoted elsewhere in the Bible. For in him we have and, what is it? I'm, I'm mixing it up right now. We uh, have and know it, live and have our being. Yes. Yeah, in him we live and move and have our being. Excuse me. I had found in my notes. That was actually uh, written by Greeks. And actually, it goes on to the next. He uses, for in, we too are his offspring. Again, he's quoting written works from Greek philosophers. Oh, do you know what that means? That Paul was not only showing them kindness and respect, he actually was interested. He actually studied. He noticed uh, he didn't say, oh, that's all rubbish, and I would never look at it. I would never spend two minutes looking at it, right? No. He actually used his Greek training. He knew their works. He was interested in their works, and he took what was good and used it as leverage for the gospel, right? And these were actually understand, understood in pantheistic terms, so they weren't attributing it to one God. And here, Paul is taking some of the good of their works and changing it and saying, this is true about the one true God. I don't see that happening much. I think a lot of times in our conversations, we just close our ears, right? We just say, oh, all you believe is rubbish, and I'm not going to listen to any of it. Can I tell you, actually, I think to have a conversation with people, to, to express the gospel to them, you know what the first thing I think you need to do? Because what Paul is doing right here, he really listened. I know we don't see it, but he heard what they believed. He knew what they believed. He, in fact, had studied what they believed. He's quoting them back to themselves right now. We must listen. It's hard to listen to someone who disagrees with you or you disagree with, isn't it? It is. But you know, I think, I know, that's the path to bringing people to Christ. That we listen to what they believe. Is once you listen... Once you get acquainted with, once you take seriously what they believe, then you can kind of start complimenting. And you can say, okay, here's something good in this, and then I can use that as a footstool to bring in the gospel, right? And that's what Paul does. He, he, he went around, even when he went around the city, he was looking, he was thinking, he was studying, and he says, ah, I see you have an altar set up to an unknown God. That's great, because here I am, I'm going to proclaim to you who that unknown God is. What you call unknown, I know, right? He couldn't have done that if he just ignored everything he saw or had studied, but he's using the good, he's using their culture to proclaim the gospel. And he can say that, he can say, I can proclaim to you what you call unknown because I know Jesus Christ, who is what? The revelation 
of God himself. Uh, So we must listen, we must respect, we must show kindness. And then we can introduce the gospel message to them. This also says that we shouldn't be threatened when other cultures, even other religions, have some good things in them, right? If people are chasing virtues, if people are chasing uh, justice and compassion, that's good. We should compliment that. We shouldn't be scared to say, well, I don't want them thinking I agree with everything they say. Paul wasn't. He complimented things about them. We, we should encourage people and say, that's good. And let me tell you why I think it's good. Because the God I worship says and showed and revealed, right? It gives you a footstool. Um, and we also believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in all peoples of the world. And we'll get to that in a little bit. That's what Paul is saying here later in his message. All right, so that's his approach. And I really believe that this must be our approach in this day and time. Uh, but let's look at his message. What is the crux of his message? Because he does articulate the gospel in ways that uh, it's a little different. It's, not, it's the same message. It's just articulated and contextualized in a different way because they didn't have all the history of Judaism. And his message, though, is really simple. He really just starts from the beginning. And I'm just going to summarize it as look at the text as I go through it. But he basically says, there's one God, right? There's one God who created everything. And for some of this, them, this wouldn't have been a foreign concept. He says, there's one God that created everything in heaven and earth, and he is Lord of every, everything in heaven and earth. He made earth, and, and he spread the people out all over the world. We came from one ancestor. We're part of what? One human family. Paul here is showing, I'm not giving in to any of the divisions because Jew and Gentile was a huge division at this time. Paul's saying we are all one family from God. And this is where he uses his quote, he uses their quote to say, hey, you too, this is in your tradition that we are God's offspring. But he's changing it because they thought it was just many gods. And here he's saying, no, this is from the one true God that we are this God's offspring since we're this God's offspring, this God can't reside in things made by our hands. He can't reside in idols or statues, and he doesn't need anything for us because he created us. We're his children. Do you hear the gospel already in that? The God is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't need anything from us, but he created us to be in his family. We are his Offspring. So he uses their traditions we talked about to declare to them that God is Lord of all. And he actually even says that this is the Holy Spirit's work around the world. It says if God spread us out so that we might, what? Look for God. That we might grope and grasp and find God because what? He is near to us all. Maybe you should start with that when you're trying to lead someone to Christ. Maybe you should say, you know what? God's not... God's never been far from you. We need to remember that. That God's at work. This is what we call prevenient grace. We've been talking about prevenient grace. God's at work in everyone's life, and he's not far off, even from the worst sinner. Amen? God is present and searching for people. He desires a relationship with people, and this is what Paul proclaims. And and Paul says, you know what? In times past... God has overlooked our ignorance. But that time is coming to a close. Now, and here he's, he's used them, he's built them up, he's kind of gotten them in. 
He's complimented them. Now he really brings in the gospel. He says, now times have changed. Because God has, he didn't say this, but we know it, sent his son. God has appointed a man, he said, to be judge over everyone. We know who that man is. Paul doesn't name him here. He has appointed a man to be judge over everyone, and now God calls us to repent. What does repent mean? Change your ways. Change your direction. It literally meant to change direction. Repent. Repent from sin. Repent from our ignorance and turn to God. Why? Because each and every one of us, all of you Athenians, sinner and Christian like every man, woman, and child is going to stand before Jesus Christ on that last day. That's Paul's message. He doesn't, he doesn't get into a big theological a discussion. He simply says, God has appointed a man. And we know that it is this man because he raised him from the dead. And now we are all going to stand before him. Do you realize, are you ready for that meeting? Do you think about, as you're living your life, that we all will stand before Jesus Christ and answer for our lives? There is, will be an accounting of our lives. For some of us, we probably should be scared about that if we're not ready for that meeting, right? For some of us, that may not be great news because we may not be ready. We may not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and so that may, meeting may come a surprise. But overall, this morning, I want to tell you that Paul's message that we all will stand before Jesus Christ is actually really good news, even for the sinner. It's good news for uh, the human race because here's a few things that it means, that we all stand before Jesus Christ and that there's coming a judgment day. Here's one of the first things it means that I find to be good news. What you do matters. Do you, do you know that? What you do matters. The small things you do, it matters. The big things you do matters. Because let's just take an Athenian worldview that there is no God and we're just doing whatever we want. You know what that means is nothing you do matters. Your life doesn't matter. If there's no accounting, if there's no final say, if there's no God, then nothing we do matters. But now we will stand before Jesus Christ. Our actions matter. So your devotion to Christ, your kindness and your compassion, it matters. It matters because God is watching. God sees all that we do and we will stand before him. So even our small acts of kindness that we think no one sees and, and may not matter and we can't change the world, friends, it matters. It matters to God. And what we believe is in the kingdom to come, those actions will be rewarded, that we will enter into an inheritance for those of us who have followed Jesus Christ. It's all also good news. Um, it's good news because that means that sin and evil don't have the last word, right? To say that everyone will stand before the judgment of Jesus Christ says that those who give in to sin, those who have oppressed people, those who think they've gotten away with it all, they haven't gotten away with anything. This is good news because... Uh, I can't imagine going through life thinking that suffering and pain and people's sin and oppression and the evil and the secrets and 
that they were just getting away with it all and there's no higher power to answer to. The good news is none of that has the final word. What does Paul say? That this is the righteous judgment of, this, of God. That finally righteousness, good, justice, will have the final word. Jesus Christ will have the final word. That's good news, friends. That's a message worth repeating. And finally, here's why it's actually great news. Because the one we're going to stand in front of at the end of our lives, it's not just some impartial, faraway, imagined God. It's not just, as they say, the watchmaker God that created the world and left it to be. Sometimes we imagine God and that meeting as a older guy, stern, shaking his finger at us. You know who we're going to stand in front of? Jesus. We're going to be stand in front of the one who came out of love for us. We're going to stand in front of the one that hovered over the woman caught in adultery and protected her and forgave her. We're going to stand over the one that came and brought healing to the lame, that ate with drunkards and sinners and showed them love and kindness. We're going to stand in front of the one who suffered for every man, woman, and child. The one who gave his life for us. There is no other one that I would want to stand in front of. I, I tell families this a lot um, because we all, we don't, we don't know always spirit, someone's spiritual life. Uh, and I, families come to me and working in hospice, people would talk about, you know, pastor, I don't know about uh, where they're at in their faith and I'm, I'm worried about them. And I can still tell them the good news. And this is why I tell them. Friend, there is no one that loves your loved one more than Jesus. There is no one in the universe that is more merciful and caring and righteous and just. You're not more just or loving than Jesus. I hate to break it to you. Even if it's your dearest loved one. And your loved one will stand before that risen I can't tell you what will come from their, that meeting, but I can tell you that whatever comes from it will be right and just, for God loves them far more than you do. That's the good news. That no matter who they are, they are headed to meet Jesus Christ. I'm not the judge, but he is. I may not want to stand in some people's shoes. <laughs> I may want to be ready, but it's still good news. He's loving. That is who we stand in front of. This is Paul's message to a society that may not care, may not believe, may not think like him. He's just telling them, friends, repent, the time is coming. We're all going to stand before him, but I want you to know him. As our scripture closed, um, we found three different responses to Paul's message, do we not? The scripture said that some scoffed. Some said, ah, rubbish. I don't believe that. Eh, that's pie in the sky. That's just another story. They went on their way. I wonder which group we would fall into. 
Some pushed the decision off till later. They just want to think about it. And others believed. Which group are you in? I wonder, I, I see people scoffing a lot. And here's the question I would ask them. I don't know if anybody here would find themselves in that group. What do you gain by not believing? Think about it. What do you gain by scoffing? Maybe you, get, you think you get to do what you want. Maybe, you, well, what that means in our terms would be, maybe you get to be more selfish. Maybe you get to be more greedy and you can spend your money how you want. Maybe by scoffing, uh, you can be full of lust and envy and pride, right? Is that what you get by scoffing? That doesn't sound like a life I want. It sounds like a pretty hellish life. And what do you lose by scoffing? You're saying that you believe in a world that you, your life doesn't matter, that your life has no meaning or purpose. You're, you're saying that suffering and pain and death have the final word and nothing you do matters. Is that what we want by scoffing at the gospel, at the good news? That's not what I want. I'm not here to make anybody feel bad that may be struggling with their faith, but I'm just saying the alternative to faith, in my perspective, is nothing good at all. It's just pain and hopelessness. For some of us, uh, it's maybe some of your family, they may seem to be like the ones that said, oh, come back later, we'll hear more about it later. And I don't think we should make anybody feel bad about their decision. I don't, I don't think we should make those who struggle with faith feel bad. Um, but at what I would say to one like that is that the word faith means you don't have to have it all figured out. And in fact, we don't have it all figured out. That faith means taking that step of the unknowing and trusting, even though we don't see it all and though we don't know it all. That's what faith is. We can still struggle with doubts. We can still struggle with trying to figure it all out, but we can still choose to trust. And what I'd also say to that person is that the more you push the decision off, the more you say, ah, oh, maybe another time, maybe another place, the harder and harder it gets to say yes to God. The harder it is to believe, to trust, to have faith. Don't push the decision off. And for those of us like that third group I hope you were in that believe, that trust, here's the good news, that we don't have to wait till that final day to meet our maker, to meet the judge that we will stand before. We can know him right now. We can have a relationship with him right now. And in fact, so when we stand before him, it'll be meeting our savior. It'll be saying thank you It'll be an incredible meeting of love and grace. We can have that meeting now for those of us who believe. But also, if you're in that third group, can I tell you this, church family? That it's our duty to contextualize the gospel. It's our calling to show people of other faiths and beliefs kindness and respect and to listen to them and to pray and to be creative and think, how can I articulate and contextualize the gospel in their life? It might not always look the same. Um, 
It'll take the Holy Spirit's leading. But it's our job, not only individually, but as a church, to do that work in our community, to proclaim the gospel. So which group do you find yourself in? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in these moments, I ask that you would speak to our hearts. If there's anyone here that is struggling with their faith, I pray that your spirit would speak to them, give them words of comfort, draw them closer to yourself. For those of us who believe, Lord, would you uh, just show us what this looks like in our lives, in our families, in our communities, in our neighbors. Would you maybe bring some people to our hearts and our minds that we can have an influence in, that we can listen to, that we can show and reveal your love and your calling to? Speak to us now, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. As we approach the time of communion in response to God's word, I'd simply say whatever group you find yourself in, whether you're a scoffer or a doubter or a person of faith, you're invited to the table of our Lord. That Jesus' invitation is open to everyone. You don't have to be a member of our church. In fact, John Wesley believed that communion was actually a converting sacrament. What he means is even, even if you were sitting in the pew and you had never made the decision to Christ, but you have a desire to do so, come forward. Take of the bread and the cup and the grace and the forgiveness of God is yours. You see, we don't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to know everything. All we need is the desire to accept God's forgiveness, the desire to follow him, turn our life over to him, and we're saved, we're forgiven, and we can know and follow Jesus Christ all of our days. So as our servers come, are you ready to join with God? Are you ready to meet before the judge of the world? You can know him now, and you can receive his grace. On the night our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat whenever you do in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood shed for you. Take, drink in remembrance of me. I invite you to exit out of your side row when you're ready. Come down and partake if you feel so called. Um, I'd invite you to pray at an altar about anything, any burden you may be carrying. Let this be a time of prayer and communion with God. Pray in your seat before you come down. Pray after. Uh, hear what the gospel message might be saying to you and your loved ones in the days to come. Come when you're ready. Let us continue in a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for not waiting to meet us. Thank you for not leaving us in our sin far away from you. Thank you for coming out of love for us and redeeming us and drawing close to yourself so that we may know you, we may have freedom from our sin and our pain and that we can live in assurance that we can be with you forever and ever. I pray that we would all have that assurance that everyone here would know and trust in Jesus Christ that they have made a decision to follow you. And may we be a people 
that contextualizes the gospel. May we not grow tired and weary and frustrated at a world sometimes that seems not to believe, but may we be strengthened by your presence. May we be illuminated, given the imagination of the gospel to show forth the good news in every setting and every culture, no matter what it looks like to proclaim the good news. Would you give us the ability, maybe even in the small ways as we talk with family and friends, may we just have wisdom. May we carry on the work of Paul proclaiming that we are all coming to stand before Jesus Christ. May we be ready for that meeting and that you love us and you have redeemed us. We thank you for that. Lord, uh, we lift up many prayer requests and needs to you right now, those who are dealing with uh, physical uh, burdens. We pray that your hand would be upon them. Uh, We lift up uh, Carl and Christina, Lord, to you. Bless them and be with Miss Rose as she continues to mourn her late husband. Uh, Be with those uh, with friends and family members with uh, uh, cancer diagnoses, Lord. Uh, We lift up Sally Crook to you, Lord. Pray that your hand of healing and, and strength would be upon her. We lift up uh, Maria and, and, and David's family, Lord, as they are mourning uh, this loss. He was special to many of us, Lord. He was such a symbol of uh, strength and faith in our lives and in the church, Lord, and we will miss him. So I pray that you would bind up their wounds, that you would comfort their hearts, and would you give them, and, and may they trust in the hope that he is with you now. He has met you. He has received a body unlike yours, Lord, and he is in perfect peace and happiness. We thank you for that assurance. Be with their family, we ask. Uh, We lift up our church, Lord, and and may we be faithful as we seek to proclaim the gospel to our neighbors and, and as we seek to show your love in our neighborhood, Lord, and bless our ministries and the ways we try to do this from the preschool ministry through the worship ministries here, the recovery ministries, Um, the food pantry, Lord, and may we continually look for where you are leading us. May everything we have at this church be used for your kingdom and your glory, Lord. May we be faithful with all you have given us. We lift up our uh, district superintendent to you, Greg Mason. Would you bless him, give him wisdom to lead us as our spiritual leader for the state of North Carolina, Lord. Uh, Would you be with uh, our state and our local leaders, our national leaders, give them peace, uh, give them wisdom and grace uh, to promote peace and justice whenever they can, Lord. We, we thank you for the peace process going on in the Korean Peninsula, Lord, and we pray that you would continue that work. Lord, we lift up the church globally. Uh, we lift up uh, our denomination and all denominations that proclaim Jesus as Lord, and we pray that you would bless them, advance your kingdom all around the world so that people may know the truth they may know Jesus. We love you, Heavenly Father. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you. Help us to pray together that prayer you taught us, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Church family, would you stand with me? Um, I'm looking out in the foyer, and we have some uh, leftover food from the food pantry, so please take whatever you need, and if uh, you can think of somebody that could use it, uh, please take some for your neighbor or your friend uh, that may be hungry. Uh, but receive this benediction now. Blessed are you that you don't need to wait till the end of days to know the judge of all judges, the king of kings. You can know him now. May you follow him the rest of your days, and may you through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, proclaim the gospel even in the most unusual ways all of your days.